Psalm number 356. We've been asked to mark that. We're not only happy to do that, but we, of course, always are excited to lift her voices and sing beautiful songs of praise and adoration to God. It is the case, as we come together this evening, we continue and really conclude our series of lessons, albeit a brief one, on this little Old Testament minor prophet of Jonah. If you would be turning to that location, perhaps you are still there from the reading of a few moments ago, but we will take up our consideration tonight with that fourth chapter of that noble little minor prophet. This next slide, one that has as its intent to at least rehearse or bring back before us some of the things we've seen already. Haven't we been challenged to revisit, maybe in the imagery of our heart and mind, the choice that Jonah made, the disobedience that he displayed, and the consequences of it? We know each so well that there still are serious consequences for disobeying God. Have you ever wondered what prompted Jonah to disobey the way he did? What made him follow that decision to proceed toward Tarshish instead of toward Nineveh? Tonight we learn in chapter 4 what, that, what reasoning he followed, and so we shall study in part how we can sometimes make at least a parallel mistake that he made. As you come to the close of that slide before you, we have looked at the first three chapters. We saw in those that the God of heaven had an interest in the well-being of Nineveh, and so he commissioned Jonah to go and to preach to them. Jonah at first did just the opposite. He chose to proceed to Tarshish instead, or at least to attempt to do so. But a great wind made that decision very, very challenging. In fact, Jonah found himself thrown overboard and was engulfed, swallowed by a great fish. As you and I studied chapter 2, we found he prayed earnestly, nobly, and intently to the God of heaven from a very unusual predicament from inside the fish's belly. But then as that chapter closed, he was vomited out on dry land. And chapter 3 then brought us to realize God one more time said, Jonah, go to Nineveh and bid the preaching that I bid thee to preach. This time he did. How did Nineveh react? How did they respond to his preaching? Today, you and I know well that we too have an interest in letting the gospel run freely. Paul, in fact, admonished each of us to pray for that. 2 Thessalonians 3.1 And you and I, in fact, support missionaries both far and wide as they themselves proclaim the goodness and the truth of God. As you and I notice, our desire should be that the fruits thereof will be not unlike Jonah. At the end of chapter 3, verse number 10, it says, And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that He had said that He would do unto them, and He did it not. I read that verse because of this next slide. You and I now come face to face with this realization. Here was a city of people who themselves were violent, who themselves were pagan, who themselves were heathen, in that they were not God's chosen people of Israel. And yet... They, after the preaching of Jonah, the text says they repented. The text says that they turned from their evil way. Here was a people who in many ways acted far better than sometimes God's own people did, wouldn't you say? They repented. They didn't, in fact, choose to exalt themselves to the point that we don't think we've done anything wrong. But rather, they humbled themselves 
frankly made recognition of their error. And a text says in verse 10, they turned from their evil way. We must be impressed at this point with the Ninevites. Although they were often enemies to God's people, look at how they behaved here. That brings us to some of those observations. I've actually listed them rather briefly, but we may develop them slightly more elaborately than that. This repentance on the part of Nineveh, doesn't it highlight, among other things, the biblical definition of repentance? In other words, they literally turned from these behaviors, these methods of conduct that they had formerly displayed, they stopped doing those things. Repentance is the most challenging part of God's gospel plan of salvation, isn't it? It's easy to bury someone in water. That just takes a few moments. It can be far harder to change the course of a life, to change these behaviors that so often have been ingrained in heart, and they have to be changed if they're wrong. They have to be stopped. You see, this matter of repentance literally means that change of mind that manifests itself in a change of action. This change of disposition that illustrates itself in a change of behavior. The people of Nineveh illustrated it well, didn't they? As you can see in that very text before us, we find throughout the nature of the Word of God passages that speak to us along that same line. In Acts 3 verse 19, the second gospel sermon that was preached when there Peter stood with such boldness there in Solomon's porch, and he admonished those on that occasion to appreciate the fact that upon response to God, they would have to turn, to literally turn away from those behaviors that were wrong and turn toward the ones that were right. Repentance is not simply being sorrowful, is it? Sometimes today, maybe there are those confused about that point. It's needful to be sorrowful for sin, but sorrowful alone is not the same as repentance. I can be sorry that I was caught. I can be sorry that things turned out the way they did, but maybe not be convicted and convinced that that former life was in fact sinful and those actions were displeasing to God. These people truly changed. No wonder in light of that, it brings to our thought the recognition of the Lord's inspired presentation of that in Matthew 21. In verses 28 and following of Matthew 21, our Savior taught a rather memorable record. He had been prompted and questioned by someone on that occasion, and ultimately it led Jesus to identify in a very profound way the idea of repentance. A father had two sons. He said to them, "'Go into my vineyard and work.'" we will remember the responses of the boys were different. One of them said, I will not, but he repented and went. What does repentance mean? Here he had made an affirmation that he wouldn't go, but then in the attitude of repentance, he not only had a mindset that displayed that change, but it manifested itself in the fact that he did go, just as the Father had ordered Repentance is defined in that very way. How interesting is it that Nineveh, this ancient empire, so distant in many ways from Israel, and yet they repented. Look at what comes next. At this point, wouldn't you and I say, this is great news. It should have been a point of tremendous excitement, not only on the part of the Ninevites, but especially for Jonah. Here was a preacher 
And so many reacted and responded positively. All of us get thrilled and excited when someone, a soul that's lost, obeys the gospel, either for the first time or coming back to their first love. Nona, Jonah should have been so excited that Nineveh reacted the way they did. After all, they could have hardened their heart. They could have turned a rebellious ear to what he had to say. They could have cared little, if any at all, for the message he preached, but they didn't. They repented. And you notice how verse number 10 closes. It says, And God repented of the evil that He had said that He would do unto them, and He did it not. That message of destruction that Jonah had preached, based on their repentance, God chose to rescind that verdict. It was to wait another 150 years. Sometimes you and I might be tempted to forget the fact that there's another Old Testament book that's the sequel to the book of Jonah. It's the little book of Nahum. Three chapters, it in fact dealt with events that took place 150 years after the days of the book of Jonah. And Nineveh during the course of those 150 years was strong and mighty and powerful. In fact, the greatest of the Assyrian days were in those 150 years. However, at the termination of that time, they had again become evil. They had again become very cruel and very much opposed to the things of God. Nahum pronounced to them the fact that God's judgment was going to be severe and stern, and this time they did not repent, and this time Assyria was destroyed. Nahum is the sequel to the book of Jonah. Doesn't it paint for us a picture that perhaps brings us, first of all, to this observation? I mentioned a moment ago that one would have thought that Jonah would have been so happy, so excited at the repentance of Nineveh. But yet, chapter 4, verse number 1, reads it like this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. Here the prophet, rather than being elated and rather than being happy, the text says he was angry on the one hand, and it exceedingly displeased him on the other. What was it that made Jonah so unhappy? What was it about Nineveh's repentance that made Jonah so angry? You'll notice that verse number 2 tells us. Surely as you and I reflect on it, listen one more time to what here is said not only about Jonah, but also about God. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before thee into Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. May I suggest that our first lesson of the evening will surround his description of God. Although there are many things about Jonah's character that may well be called into question, one has to be at least amazed at his directness in terms of describing God. Look at some of the statements he made. He said, when I was in my country and you first came to me, I knew that this is what was going to happen. Doesn't that cause you to shiver inside? Here was a prophet and he said, I knew that this was what was going to happen. He knew the power of the Word of God and he knew that the Ninevites, it would seem, were going to react to it. He understood well that it would prick their hearts and that they would be motivated to change. 
and he was now angry. But along the way, he said, I know, verse number 2, that thou art a gracious God. He knew that God was a tremendous and amazing God of grace. And as you and I have so often noted, grace is simply the following. It is an appreciation whereby God sets forth a means of teaching, a means of illustration, such that those who respond to it in obedience can receive the blessings of its rewards. Remember, Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord, Genesis 6 verse 8. That simply identifies the fact God presented to Noah a system of instruction whereby upon his compliance therewith, he could receive the reward of salvation. And Noah did it. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Genesis 6.22 One more time we notice, God was gracious to the Ninevites. They responded in obedience to that which He commanded them through the preaching of Jonah. Aren't you and I thankful today that we serve and worship a God of graciousness? One who has presented to us a system of instruction such that our compliance therewith is met with the blessings and rewards that He has promised upon that obedience. Isn't it amazing? We read in 2 Timothy 2, 1, grace is in Christ. I know I speak before an audience tonight who, by and large, has obeyed the gospel. You have been placed into Christ as a result of your obedience in baptism. Isn't it sweet to be in Christ? No wonder with that, notice what next Jonah stated. He also affirmed in verse 2, God's merciful. God's merciful. He does not give us what we deserve. We each, by virtue of our sin, deserve to be lost, but yet He has extended to us the marvelous issue that we don't have to receive that which we justly deserve. Mercifulness. Look at what else He affirmed. Verse number 2, slow to anger. Wasn't it true God had been patient with the Ninevites? By that I mean He could have destroyed them momentarily. He could never have sent Jonah to them. But He chose in the directness of that compassion to send Jonah. Aren't you thankful today that God's patient with you and me? He has extended to us opportunities whereby even in the midst of our mistakes we can come to our senses just like the prodigal son did and we can come back home. God, too, is one who is slow to anger. Isn't it true in 2 Peter 3.15? The long-suffering of our God is our salvation. Notice next what he said. He also is of great kindness. Sometimes our youngsters in VBS, as they sing, God is so good, you and I do well to sing the same thing. He has been so good to you and me through the years and the decades of our lives. He gives us the bounty of the physical blessings of the day. And also, topping that, of course, is the abundance of all the spiritual ones. Do you and I thank God each day, as earnestly as we should, for the abundance of those gifts? He really has been so good to us. You'll notice one last thing. We are told in verse number 2 that He repents Him of evil. Now you and I know that God can see distantly into the future just as well as He knows the past. Time is no barrier to Him. On this occasion, God knew the Ninevites would repent. 
Is that why he insisted so that Jonah would go? You would think so. At the very least, we can say this. God does respond to the issues that you and I bring to Him. Do you and I sometimes forget the fact that when we pray, you and I can bend the ear of the God of heaven and that He will move people and communities and nations on behalf of those who are His children? Is it any wonder that we should be so fervent and earnest in prayer, praying, as we're told in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, praying for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty? That kind of prayer, we have this assurance. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. James 5, 16. It may well be as we reflect on these words that came out of Jonah's mouth. I'm sure they lead us to close that slide in this very observation. It would seem you and I are admonished through the Word of God to be as mindful of those attributes of God as Jonah could have been. Also thanking Him for His abundant mercy, appreciating His graciousness, and understanding too that He's long-suffering to usward not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, to borrow the words of 2 Peter 3, 9. With that lesson in mind and these attributes of God, it only heightens our appreciation to notice what is that comes next. Our countenance is bound to sink as we come to this observation. We've highlighted before that Jonah, it would seem, should have been so excited at the success of the preaching of the word in Nineveh. But yet, Jonah was unhappy. He was angry. It displeased him exceedingly. What is it that displeased him? May I ask you to notice the two-letter two word, it? That's the second word of verse 1 of Jonah 4. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. That pronoun it refers to the repentance of the Ninevites. As the antecedent of that pronoun is the very idea of verse 10, the very preceding verse. Here was a prophet of God who was displeased that people responded to the preaching of the Word. Can you imagine today a gospel preacher that way? Or perhaps a person who's a Christian who preaches the Word but yet doesn't want anybody to respond? Hard to believe, isn't it? And yet, that's the very thing that Jonah himself confessed. The very thing that he admitted. Why don't we use this slide to close it by at least reflecting on the character of Jonah. As sorry a character, at least at this point as it was. Notice again. He prayed unto the Lord and said, verse 2, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? We raised the question earlier this evening. Why did Jonah disobey originally the way that he did? God said, go to Nineveh. He went to Tarshish instead, or at least attempted to do so. What is it that prompted him in that regard? He now tells us. He said that this was the very saying that I stated to you when you first told me to go to Nineveh. He can make confession of the fact they are likely to repent. They are likely to change or at least be responsive. And I don't want them to be responsive. I don't want them to react. And I don't want them to respond in a positive way. Isn't it true we learned something interesting here? Jonah was a much better patriot than he was a prophet, at least in that regard. 
He was very patriotic about his people. He loved the people of Israel. But the Ninevites were his political enemies. The Ninevites were individuals that often would pose a great deal of injury and harm to the nation of Israel. Jonah didn't want them to be saved. Jonah didn't want them to be reactive to the gospel or to the message of the truth in a positive way. Jonah said, I knew this is what was going to happen. Doesn't that reflect in us perhaps some statements like this? Jonah knew that God would forgive if Nineveh repented. He knew that God would look with favor upon them and He would rescind that verdict of destruction if they repented. And what Jonah didn't want to happen has now happened. They did repent. They did turn to God. They did change their ways and their behavior. And now God had forgiven them. And in that state, in that consideration, Jonah was unhappy. Doesn't that reflect so poorly upon the character of this prophet? It has often been noted, I suppose, that among those prophets of the Old Testament, and don't we encounter some of the noblest souls that ever walked this planet? Isaiah and Elijah, Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah, Micah, Amos and the others. There seemingly was a bad apple in the barrel. And yet even he was allowed by God to preach a message and thanks be unto God the Ninevites responded the way they did. But Jonah had a problem with his character. He had a problem with his perspective. He had a problem with his outlook. As you come near the bottom of that slide, we, read, we encounter verse number 3 which even heightens it. Verse 3 says, Therefore now, O God, or O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah was so displeased at the repentance of the Ninevites and so displeased that God had now ex extended favor to them that he would rather have died than to see the blessing of God upon them. Can you imagine? Can you portray, can you consider a prophet behaving like this with this attitude? Now we see why he wanted to go to Tarshish. He didn't want the Ninevites to be saved. He didn't want the Ninevites to repent. He didn't want God to bless them. He wanted them to be destroyed. And now he was saddened that they weren't. As you and I think about that, doesn't it speak volumes about the kind of behavior that sometimes can even manifest itself in some small way, even maybe within people you and I know, perhaps even those that call themselves Christians, as we close that slide, why don't we develop it a little further like this? I chose to put back up that map that highlighted the extent that doesn't it at least show us how much Jonah did not want the Ninevites to change. Jonah didn't just go to the next town. Have you ever thought about that? His previous country, he went to Joppa and was interested in going so far, Tarshish even, he wanted as far from Nineveh as he could get. Maybe among other things, that highlights for us some of these additional comments. The next part of this chapter goes on to tell us even further what Jonah did and one of the most beautiful teaching lessons that we find in the Minor Prophets of the Old Testament. God tried to drive home to Jonah the sorriness of his attitude and the great extreme changes he himself needed to make. Let's finish chapter number 4 by reading it and then develop some additional thoughts concerning it. 
Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow, till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm when the morning arose the next day, and it smote the gourd and it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry even unto death. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and also much cattle? It brings us to this slide. To replay at least a few of those events, after this conversation between God and Jonah, Jonah went out on the east side of Nineveh and perched himself in a place that he could watch and observe the city, what it was that would befall it, what it was that would happen to it. You and I notice in verses 5 and following, it was a hot time of year. Oh, in that Middle Eastern part of the world, you and I know where Nineveh is located. It's a sultry, desert kind of location. Oh, it was so hot. You notice that God prepared a gourd. That literal word has to do with a kind of plant that grows in that part of the world. And this plant sprung up so very quickly and it provided some shade for Jonah. And oh, he was so thankful for the gourd tree. But you also notice in the very next verse, God prepared a worm. Isn't it amazing how many things God prepared in this book? There was a great wind in chapter 1 that ultimately caused the mariners not to be able to make it safely to land and Jonah was thrown overboard. And then God prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And now in this chapter He prepared a gourd and then He prepared a worm and then He prepared a great powerful hot east wind. Our God's in control of the things of this earth. You notice with me that after God prepared that worm, it says in verse number 7, it smoked the gourd tree and the tree withered. That thing that had provided such relieving shade for Jonah wasn't there anymore. And did you notice how Jonah reacted? Verse number 8 says, He fainted and he wished it himself to die. He was so bothered by the fact that the gourd tree was gone that Jonah was unhappy again. He was very displeased. God used those events to teach him an unforgettable lesson. And he teaches us in some way something very similar. Notice with me the conversation of verse 9. God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? Here was Jonah. He was angry because he, was, he no longer had the gourd tree. And yet, not many moments earlier, he had been in conversation with God, and he wasn't the least bit sorry for, for Nineveh. In fact, he was displeased Nineveh had been spared. He was dissatisfied that, Jonah had, that Nineveh had repented. Now, he was upset that he didn't have a gourd tree. 
Jonah was more concerned about the gourd tree than he was about the souls of the Ninevites. He was more concerned about his well-being in the shade that he no longer had than he was about the eternal well-being of 120,000 people in Nineveh. A rather despicable attitude, wouldn't you say? Perhaps it's fair to notice as we come near the bottom of that particular slide that it prepares us to know one final set of ideas. These we will highlight in terms of this lesson. The souls of men. Here was a prophet whom God had commissioned. Go and preach to Nineveh. But yet all the while, Jonah didn't want them to repent. He, in fact, wanted them to be destroyed because they were his political enemies. Jonah didn't have much love for the souls of the Ninevites. In fact, he was displeased when God spared them. He was displeased when God extended to them the favor in light of their repentance. As you and I come to those thoughts today, isn't it amazing? This gourd tree, Jonah hadn't planted it. He had done nothing to cultivate it. God made it grow the way that He did. And Jonah cared more for the absence of the gourd tree than he did for the people of Nineveh. It really is something to think about, isn't it? I mentioned before that amongst the prophets of the Old Testament, we so often find those sweet and committed souls who labored even if it meant their lives in faithfulness to God. But yet we encounter Jonah, who cared so little for the souls of the people. He wanted them destroyed, but he was all upset about a gourd tree. Maybe at the bottom of that slide. You and I can now ask about ourselves, at least in that regard. When it comes to ourselves, are we willing to be inconvenienced if it means potentially the soul salvation of another? Am I willing to sacrifice something that's a selfish benefit to myself? If in that sacrifice it might well mean the opportunity or at least the likelihood that another might be reached with the gospel? If I behave that way, am I any different than Jonah? I can hope that the gospel will have free course and that it will run wildly and that souls will respond to it. But am I so demanding of selfish things for myself that I'm unwilling to bend that in any way to benefit somebody else? Those questions perhaps are raised by some of the thoughts at the bottom of that slide. 120,000 people in Nineveh. In fact, it was more than that because the text says in verse number 11, there are more than 120,000 citizens in Nineveh. They don't know the right hand from the left. God says they're confused on every hand. They are not mindful of the way of wrong and right, but yet the preaching of Jonah brought it to them. And God says to Jonah, shouldn't I be concerned with them in the same way you ought to have been, but yet you are more concerned about a gourd tree than you were about them? It's not a pretty reflection of the attitude of Jonah, quite frankly. In fact, it reflects so poorly upon what he esteemed in life and how little he looked upon the worthiness of the souls of individuals. When you and I look upon others, do we see eternal souls? Or do we see inconveniences? Do we see that which might be a bothersome matter to us? Might we appreciate they too are made in the image of God? 
they too will stand before the august presence of that God of heaven and give an accounting for the deeds done in the body. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. Surely in light of that, we can remember what it was our Savior affirmed. When Jesus preached in the abundant ways that He did upon earth, what did He see when He saw individuals? He saw those who would stand before God and He saw souls. Our Savior affirmed in Matthew 10, 28, didn't He? Fear not him which can kill the body, but hath no more than he can do. But fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Do you and I fear God in that way? Are we so loving and compassionate with respect to others that we too would want them to come to know that gospel that you and I have appreciated? We have here at the Pippin Congregation a number of avenues. We sponsor preachers in distant countries. We sponsor gospel activities on radio and even in the newspaper and other places. But may we never lose sight of the day-to-day opportunities that may well come our way. Matters that are not inconvenient. Matters that are not that which causes too much dissacrifice. But opportunities to drop nuggets of truth wherever we may be, in the avenues of life that we're blessed to have, so that others can come to appreciate the soul salvation that you and I have already come to know. Lessons from Jonah. As you close that slide with me, it brings us to the final slide of not only tonight, but of our series in total, our study of Jonah. May you and I never have a disposition to keep the church from other people. We should want others to react and others to obey. And we should be excited when they do. Maybe you and I have known individuals who almost, with a crusty attitude, preach hoping that nobody will respond. May we never behave like that. Jesus pointed to a world lost in sin and said, Go and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. Luke's version of that same great commission put it in words like this. Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. All nations beginning at Jerusalem. You and I can be thankful that the people of Nineveh responded despite Jonah's attitude. May you and I have a better attitude, though, than he did. May we allow God to work through us to reach the souls of others, being His mouth and those who proclaim His word in faith and in truth. And so it is as we come to the urgency of the gospel. Didn't Paul state it like this? In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16, Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. May you and I live it faithfully, speak it truthfully, exemplify it totally, and thus so that others can not only see the blessed example of Jesus within us, but even our words will testify of the same. As we've studied Jonah, this four-chapter book in the Old Testament, we found a number of principles that speak rather directly to even our life in Christ. As the Lord's invitation is extended, we have found the matter of disobedience a direct challenge. 
It may be you and I have never boarded a ship to Tarshish because God told us to go to, told us to, go to Nineveh. But when He has told us all the commandments of the New Testament, have we deliberately disobeyed them? Have we chose to forsake and do the things that we ought not? If so, we may find ourselves in a parallel circumstance to the dangerous place Jonah was. Why not come back to your first love tonight if that's the need of your life? The book of Jonah, as well as the rest of the Bible, tells us about the graciousness of God. He wants you to come to His side. He so much wants to forgive you. But He has stated the terms upon which He will forgive, and He lets us make the decision as to whether or not we shall follow those terms. Tonight, it may be there's someone in the audience who, though a faithful Christian at one time, no longer is, and you know that matters in your life need to change. We prayed this morning for Brother Chad as he came forward and how excited we are to do that for any individual that comes forward. This evening, if we could help you, we'd be honored to do that, and God would be so excited to forgive. If you, however, have never become a Christian, those initial terms... You must believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. And we'd be delighted to assist you this evening if we could. As we close this series, I hope we each have been encouraged and prompted to do some things differently than Jonah, especially in our attitude and our way of internal thinking in response to God. If we could help anyone in encouraging that behavior, we'd be delighted to do it. Why not come now while together we stand and while we sing?